Welcome to the African Intel Affairs Podcast. Today I'll be reviewing a book called Changing Intelligence Dynamics in Africa, compiled and edited by Johnny Quadjo and Sandy Africa. It's a short but sweet book, succinct in the presentation of its ideas and in the exploration of some of its ideas. Um, what the book presents is a linear chronology of the development of intelligence services and to some other degree security services with regard to administration um, and governance from pre-colonial times to post-colonial, post-dictatorship times here in Africa. And the reason why the editors, in this case, because the book is a compilation of different papers and studies conducted by different experts in various fields, I'm sure those details will be located in the description. And I think one of the major reasons that the editors decided to, to do this was because in order to develop the, the future of intelligence services in Africa and systems of administration regarding security services, um, you have to be able to, to know what was done before, what mistakes were made before, and so with the knowledge of that context, how do we move forward, right? You know, Maya Angelou said, you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. And so by compiling all these papers, and creating like a, a chronological um, image of the development of intelligence services in Africa from pre-colonial to post-colonial times, it allows us to do two things. The first is it allows us to observe the patterns that emerge over time so that we can see how different areas and different countries in Africa had intelligence services instituted in pre-colonial times, how those services operated, how the intelligence services developed, and so with every country, you're going to get nuances and you're going to get a lot of patterns. One of the patterns that emerges regardless of the country is how when police services are established by the colonizers, you usually get these police services acting in an informal manner. The reason I think it's important to observe is because these police services, they are conducting policing activities, right? So everything that goes with policing, right? Crime management, helping the, the, the civilians, more specifically the, the British civilians. Then they also took on the informal roles that modern day intelligence services would take on. So that includes gathering intelligence on, on groups of interest who could threaten the regime. And what's interesting is that in these early stages, these police services aren't necessarily marked by any kind of uh, formal authoritative language, right? So there is no law or there aren't uh, many restrictive laws that restrict the behavior of police services. Instead, they have... Um, they have rules and laws, rules of engagement, laws of how to conduct themselves that revolve around the concept of regime protection. And so what you see happening is that in a lot of instances where you don't have strict laws to guide the actions of the services moving forward as they conduct operations or try to achieve a goal, and instead you have these ambiguous rules that are unified by a specific goal like protect the regime. And through that ambiguity, it sort of gives those police services the all clear to do whatever it takes as long as it is regime protection. You know, antagonizing the repressed locals, right, isn't part of the job description. And it might actually serve to agitate them, which could threaten the regime. 
So you see how, as long as it's focused toward regime protection, the limits exist, but they're more like retroactive limits. It allows them to look back and question the actions, right, and say, were those actions justified by regime protection, right? And if so, then it's absolutely fine, it's absolutely sanctioned. I believe in in Uganda, the the you know, the British government or the, the, the local colonizer government gave the all clear for the use of excessive force to their police services in the beginning stages, you know. And one can understand why. You know, a show of excessive force in the early stages of administration is a good way to um weed out any people who will make it difficult for you to rule them. While Everyone else is being repressed because they're too afraid of your excessive force. And so it's that's an interesting one to observe because you see it emerge in the book later on when it comes to South Africa and trying to take the suggestions that were laid out in the white paper, which was basically a, a paper detailing the the ideal direction of the development of intelligence services in South Africa while maintaining a focus toward uh, democratic values and such. And we will get to that because I want to try and make this linear in the way that I understood it and the way that I saw things, right? And so, like I mentioned, one of the patterns is how the police services are established in the early stages of colonization, right? Um, another pattern which I think is very interesting to observe, is once colonizers leave and leave behind their administrative infrastructures, particularly regarding their police and security services, it's interesting to see how dictatorships emerge from that. So on the surface, the book points out how a lot of dictators um, in Uganda, in Ghana, you know, a lot of authoritarians once they they inherit the uh, the colonizer administration, what's interesting to observe is that they immediately create a close circle around them re regarding their security services, their police services, their military. They staff those positions with people who are already close to them, right? So, for example, with Idi Amin, it was his tribesmen, and um, you see that kind of thing occurring commonly common enough to consider it a pattern within dictatorial regime prote regime protection focused um, services of administration right police services uh, intelligence services military services and um, you can kind of understand why they would want to put only the people they considered close confidants in positions of power and security around them right? And there's two things I want. I think are very interesting. The first is that what they consider close isn't necessarily just agreeing with what the president thinks. For them, what they consider what what they consider close is a cultural heritage, right? So we're from the same tribe, you know. We're from the same family, and you know, to a larger degree, what they're really saying here is we have a common understanding, right? And we are part of the same community, a community that exists because of a common experience, therefore a common understanding, right? And none of the, these perspectives are ever backed up with legal, legal administration. There is no legislation or laws that back up the intelligence services like this. They always act in an informal manner, although part of a dictatorship, 
right? And I think there is something quite poetic about that. And what that poetry is, is that before the colonizers, tribes were governing themselves. And then, and the systems of governance that tribes utilized required no formal written administration. What that means is there were no written laws in the tribes. There were no laws about, no written laws, let me clarify, no written laws about how to behave or, you know, where is the border, or, you know, what will happen to you if you're caught stealing, or caught doing this or that, you know, there were no written down laws. All the things one can consider laws or rules for living in those environments or paradigms are, tra are considered traditions, and traditions are things that are developed and reinforced by a common living experience, which is usually what defines a community, right? Is there's a common experience that everyone shares that affects everyone's perspectives and therefore influences what we consider to be rules. You understand? Tribes that grow up in an area of heavy flooding are going to have very different rules when it comes to or traditions um, than tribes that are nomadic and live in a desert. You understand? Um, but there are no written rules for this, right? So it's interesting that when it comes to community understanding and communal administration, particularly with the tribal dynamic where community is such a, uh, an important focus, there is no formal law. And so when the colonizers impose British administration upon them, right, they are, li they are living in a system that is actively suppressing them. But as soon as those colonizers leave and they inherit the, the, the administration, it's interesting to observe how Almost every single country tries to go back to an old system of tribal administration. And by that, I mean a system with a focus on community. You understand? On community. And not necessarily formal laws uh, uh, indicating what the rules are, but communal experience indicates what the rules are. And through the dictatorial paradigm, you observe this by them having only intelligence services uh, staffed by their tribesmen or by people considered in their family, you see. And to a lesser degree, that also, you know, harkens back to the, to the, uh, to the tribal aspect, because within the tribal paradigm, you understand that you know, in the book, when they talk about pre-colonial intelligence services and, you know, intelligence gathering and operations, it is intertribal and it's, it, it usually um, existed to sort of help one tribe understand the context of their relationship to another tribe based on the differences or similarities in culture, in standard of living, because one might have fertile land whereas the other does not. That might be a, a cause for war, or perhaps the intelligence operative can find you know, some other cultural or, or communal commonality that might suggest that the tribes can work together. But it's interesting to observe that in a lot of African countries post-colonization, the appreciation for the nuance of tribes came back. You understand? And so you've got in, in more volatile re regions like the Great Lakes region, you've got people still fighting tribal battles. You know, within with modern context, right? They're fighting for uh, precious minerals. They're fighting for natural resources, things that the value of which, you know, was um, demonstrated within the modern paradigm. You see, and so it's interesting how 
you know, a fight that's like a hundred years old just rears its ugly head again a hundred years later with the modern paradigm. And so it's interesting that once the colonizers left, there was an attempt almost all over the place. Like South Africa is unique because it's one of those countries that it worked with its colonizers to sort of redefine what the rules are, what the laws are, so that things like repression, political exclusion, all these things could wouldn't be allowed to happen, right? They 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 adopt a democratic legislation, you know, a democratic uh, constitution, and they move forward into the world of 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 modern day democracy and democratic administration as we know it. There isn't at least the South African paradigm didn't try to go back to the tribal perspective of administration on that level. But I will come back to that because they do go back to the tribal sense, right? To the communal sense. I'm going to use the word communal instead of tribal because tribal, I feel like, doesn't hold the, the right connotations. But the communal sense, right? Which was developed in the tribal times. And so even the, so we have the dictators who only fill their their intelligence service staff with with um fellow tribesmen right but then you've also got like uh in in countries like uh, uh Kenya what happened was after the colonizers left they sort of removed any kind of legal frameworks that would protect the police services from manipulation or from being corrupted by like a single individual or a small group of people what they the reason they removed those legislative protections from the police services was because they felt on paper you know you have to remember that for africans the administration was communal no written rules and so what that means is is that you take things on a case-to-case -case basis with an appreciation for the nuance of the community and the communal experience. So you appreciate that nuance and that will factor into your decision-making with regard to the problems at hand. So on paper, to them it made sense to remove those legislative protections, right? So that local community leaders, local community uh, councils could then administer the police or administer you know crime fighting through the police because who would know better the nuance of what what problems need to be solved in local communities than the community councils instead of the government which has a broad region to 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 look over and so with the administration of a broad area of land you might miss the nuance that a community needs to be appreciated so that they can be administered in a way that they feel is fulfilling and effective without a certain aspect of nuance being ignored, which to an extreme degree, you know, some groups can, can consider to be cultural, um, sort of like culturally uh, offensive, you know. And so it's interesting to observe how in a post-colonial uh, uh, administrative system, You've got this desire for Africans to move back to that communal administration that we had when we were just tribes, right? But the, the modern-day paradigm makes it difficult to do that, right? Because we know absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so perhaps within the tribal dynamic, this idea of absolute power didn't exist or didn't present itself that way. Maybe absolute power lay with the throne or the royal council or something. But, you know, for whatever reasons the checks and balances required to make sure that power is not abused through corruption 
those checks and balances somehow existed, right? So they thought they could go back to that. And so you've got the dictators doing their thing. You've got the, the Kenyan government trying to say, well, the local community councils should be the right ones to tell you how to do things. And because the local community councils are doing it on their own with no oversight, it didn't take, it was just a hop, skip and a jump before they were the corrupt ones and corrupting the police services, right? Within the paradigm of South Africa, regarding what I mentioned earlier about how Communities might need nuance when it comes to certain actions of administration and appreciation uh, of, of nuance. If I were to make my own observations about South Africa, I would say this. I mean, these observations, in my opinion, I believe are true of all of Africa. Um, but in places like South Africa, I feel like you can observe it a lot more easily. Um, you see, laws are formal. And the authority of laws is represented through formal language, right? And so, if, an, if a police officer in a Western country says to you, you're being detained, there is an authority that the word detained, within the paradigm of the legal framework, there is an authority that the man with the badge can invoke when he says you're being detained. But you as a civilian also have an authority, or you have the power to challenge that authority with the, with the same formal language, because you know the 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 law will state that you know a civilian cannot be detained unless you know under certain un, unless they meet certain criteria or certain circumstances are occurring. Outside of that, you can't just detain whoever you want because you think that well this one looks like he could be a criminal. How do I know? I need to detain him first before I figure that out, you know, because the concept of innocent until proven guilty is lost at that point, right? And so you can see how the formal language represents the authority of the law and the use of that formal language allows not only the, the security services of the government, you know, the administrative services, to wield that authority, but it also allows civilians to wield that authority, right? However, I ask you, can corruption be facilitated by formal language? If a cop pulls me over in South Africa, can I bribe him by saying, Officer, I realize I broke the law and was speeding. May I please offer you a bribe? Or... Or saying something like, Officer, I honestly, with my living scenario, I cannot afford whatever ticket you're going to give me. Because I don't know how much you're going to give me, right? But if I say to you, well, I, 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 I probably can't afford it. I'm struggling right now. And so I'd like to give you a bribe. You know, I don't think there's ever been a single bribe in history to ever occur through the utilization of the word bribe. I want to bribe you. You know what I'm saying? I don't think there's any meaningful corruption that's ever occurred or any bribe that's ever been facilitated by the formal language of, can I bribe you? You see, in South Africa, you would immediately do this thing. I mean, in the West, they have a term for it. In the West, it's called code switching, right? Where minorities speak to, uh, for example, familial groups a certain way. They'll speak to authority figures a certain way. They'll speak to, you know, code switching. And this is all informal language, right? 
but you you know you switch you switch the code which means that you you switch the mental framework through which you you perceive what's being said to you so that you can understand what's being said to you what's up the sky is up you know like no that's not what i was saying right and so in a place like south africa you immediately speak i mean not even south africa if i'm being honest africa you know you take it to malawi you take it to um you take it anywhere really and you've got variations if we're talking about the traffic stop you've got variations of this traffic stop where if it was me the first thing i would do would be to start speaking to to the cop like he's my uncle assuming he's my uncle's age right like the cop is probably like maybe you know late 30s late 40s you know somewhere there maybe even 50 and so i speak to him like he's my uncle because that's my uncle's age and if he's my uncle's age then they probably grew up in the same time, dealing with the same societal and cultural norms. You understand the same familial expectations and societal expectations. And so, you know, the development of the language, the perspective, the perception, the understanding, they've got similar understandings when it comes to certain things because they lived at the same time in the same community. And so when I sp start speaking to him as my uncle, your uncle, please, you know... I know, uncle. I'm so sorry, uncle. You know, when you start speaking to him like that, the only people who speak to him like that are his nephews. And so, in his mind, I'm probably the age of his nephew, you know? Oh, you're the age of my nephew. You could, you know, my nephew speaks like you. My nephew dresses like you. Oh, yeah, he likes the hippity hoppity like you, you know? And, um... <laughs> and... Once we are in that paradigm, where I'm speaking to him like he's my uncle, and it works because my uncle grew up in the same time and in the same community as this cop, right? And and when I say community, we're really talking about traditional norms. It's not so much about growing up in the same area, although that is a form of a community. But when you talk about community within the Af African paradigm, you're talking about like traditional lessons, you understand? Traditional lessons that are that are universal. Of course, you might find some nuances between, you know, someone who is, is you know, Shona in, in Zimbabwe, or like, for example, someone who's in Devele in Zimbabwe and someone who's Zulu in, in, in South Africa, the languages are very similar and the traditions are also similar, but they're not the same. They're not exactly the same. There are nuanced differences. But despite that, there are common traditional lessons that, you know, you have to assume have been handed down to us generation by generation by generation, you know. So what makes them common? despite being separated by hundreds of miles of, 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 of distance, is like history and heritage. And, and at a time in pre-colonial times where tribes were intermingling, where intelligence services were being utilized to, to, to uh, spy on other tribes in order to determine how best can we coexist. And so you're looking at that like 100, 200 years later, and you've got common traditional beliefs that, that permeate th throughout and across the continent. And of course, there are nuanced differences as well. Um, and so when I speak to him as my uncle, the language I use, the tone I use, you know, the way I would speak to my uncle, he recognizes because his nephews speak to him the same way. And the way I'm dressed, you know what I'm saying, the music that's on the radio, you know, the way I'm speaking to him all reminds him of his nephew. 
And so now, because we're on the same wavelength in terms of how, you know, the language we're using, and the language we're using, the way we're communicating is something that emerged through the communal understanding, right? So the communal experience, the common experience for our community is what influences the communal understanding, right? Everybody who lives in that, you know, flooded, everyone in that tribe who lives in that area that floods a lot, because the flooding is a common experience, there is a common understanding about the destruction flooding can do, about the steps they need to take to protect it. You know what I'm saying? And these can be considered rules, but in truth, they are traditions because they are transmitted really orally and they aren't really written down, you see. And so because of the communal understanding, he recognizes when I speak to him like his nephew. And I recognize when he speaks to me like he's my uncle. And he immediately switches from using formal language, do you know why you're speeding tonight, to using the informal language, ah, nephew, what's going on, nephew? How can you be speeding like this, nephew? What's going on? Where are you rushing to, nephew? You understand? It is only by communicating through the, the communal language, right, which is representative of the communal experience, that we can observe the current scenario, the current situation, which is this traffic stop, through the lens of the community. We no longer observe it through the lens of the government, which was represented by the formal language. What, do you know why I pulled you down, pulled you over? I don't, officer. License and registration, please. Here you go, officer. There you go. You know, all that formal language is representative of the, the government administration and the, the societal experience of laws and law enforcement. The second you switch it to the communal paradigm, now we're looking at this traffic stop through the lens of the community. So while it may be true that that um, I did break the law and was speeding and do deserve a ticket, only through that communal lens can we then observe that in our community, a community so filled with poverty, how many people can really afford to pay a ticket? You know, a lot of people can't afford to, to make sure that the consistency of having food in their fridge or in their pantry is something that they can maintain, you know? And, you know, and that's just an example of a community that I have observed and lived with, that a lot of people can't afford just to, to, to you know, parents dread their kids being too big for their shoes, you know, growing, outgrowing their, their school uniform. Parents dread that because buying that uniform is going to impact the, the food, etc. And so when we observe the current scenario through the communal lens, the community having been bound together by communal experience, experiences like that. So both me and this cop understand that in our community, a lot of people can't afford to pay this fine just like right off the cuff like that. And really, this is the only way to reach a scenario where you say to the cop or the cop says to you, just give me enough money to buy a Coke and you can be on your way. So it's interesting to observe how formal language right the formal language of the law cannot be invalidated by formal language can't happen instead it's invalidated by informal language right because the informal language is the only one that allows the appreciation of nuance the nuance of what the community goes through and by appreciating that nuance by appreciating the nuance of what the community goes through then the law doesn't seem as 
um, well thought out. It doesn't seem as effective. Maybe we shouldn't enforce this law indiscriminately because there is a nuance that this law doesn't pay attention to that I have lived as the police officer in this you know analogy I have lived it and this boy is living it now because he's like my nephew's age and so he and I can appreciate the nuance that the law neglects and so because that authority is with me to enforce I can decide that you know what the kid did the crime He'll buy me a Coke. Instead of paying a, a, a $200 fine, you know, a 2000 fine, he'll just pay like a $20 fine. You know, and the $20 fine really is buying him a Coke, giving him enough money to buy a Coke. You know, you've learned your lesson. Did it suck having to give your money away? Good. You've learned your lesson. Now you can be on your way. This is the, the, the informal punishment because the formal procedures don't take account the... Uh, take into account the nuance. So it's very interesting to see how, in Kenya in particular, they tried to, to say, you know, let's get rid of the legislative protections of the police so that the communal, the community councils can then help the police enforce the law in the community. And on paper, it sounds like a great idea. But, you know, it's like, um, you know, some people might might you know remember the famous stanford experiment regarding the prisoners and guards and you know how that stanford experiment just just reinforced some wisdom that had been observed in history right absolute power corrupts absolutely and so it's like you see this conflict emerge where the desire to go back to the tribal way of things because that's who you are you know that's for the africans it's like that tribal element for them, that's who they were for so long that now when they're trying to govern themselves, they've got all this other stuff that they have to, to pay attention to. So now it's no longer easy to merge formal administration with communal appreciation and, and the appreciation of the nuance of communities, right? I mean, that's why pre-colonial spies went to other tribes. They didn't go there to conduct some kind of like corporate espionage or some kind of sabotage, you know. They really went there to observe the nuance of the community that was the other tribe and to determine, well, how well can we get along? How well can we really get along? And in some instances, sure, um, the other tribe had more fertile land that the first tribe that sent their intelligence operative is looking to take over that, that land. And so maybe they sent him there to find any vulnerabilities, military strength, etc. Of course, that did happen, you know, even while trying to assess the nature of the relationship, like, well, how can we get along? They are going to do a military assessment just in case things don't go well. You understand? Um, so it's interesting to observe that, that, uh, particular, that particular, um, conflict in in african in african um administration uh that we have a community administration i mean even now um all over africa you've got this informal sense of of uh administration when it comes to everything you know i'm not talking just about laws or or government bodies you know there is this informal sense of community that you know uh sort of beckons you to appreciate the nuance of the communal experience. You know, you go to a store, you, you can't go to um, to um, like a Walmart and say, 
I'd like to buy this, this, you know, Gatorade, but I don't have any money on me. But you know I'll get you next time. You can't say that at Walmart, you know? And so for the concept of, of that kind of credit, there is a completely formal and legal way to do it. A completely formal way to facilitate that kind of, I don't have the money now, I'll get you back later, right? There's a formal way to do that, credit cards, etc., right? Formal debt, etc. Um, but within the African paradigm, especially in impoverished areas, they go to the local supermarket or the local um, 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 trader because sometimes you have local traders in those areas that are a lot smaller scale than supermarket than supermarkets, although they have everything a supermarket could have. And if they know you well enough, you've been here enough times, uh, um, especially to you've you've purchased from them enough times to inform their own community, like their own common experience, right? You might even be on a first-name basis with the seller by now. At that point, you can say to the guy, man, I'm dead broke. I'll get you when I can get you. And they don't have a problem. Because if nothing else, they know that you are going to buy here again. You are going to buy from here again. You will. And so when that time comes, I'll collect, you know. I'll collect when that time comes. But that's a worst-case scenario. That's assuming you're dishonorable and don't come back and pay your debt anyway, right? So... In Africa, it seems like there is, to some degree, this conflict where you've got this desire to appreciate the nuance of communities. And that appreciation goes into administration, right? Um, you've got this desire to, to, to appreciate that nuance, but you also have to try and do it in a formal way that the law itself sort of um, supports while not compromising the law itself. Just in the same way that only the informal language can invalidate the formal language, right? So it's like, it's this strange balancing act that's a bit difficult for them to, to get quite right. Um, and so, yeah, man, the, the book was awesome. I know it laid out these, these, these problems, or rather it laid out the development of intelligence services from pre-colonial to post-colonial times. You get to observe the patterns, right? Police services acting informally at first, um, uh, all uh, administrative services regarding uh, security and intelligence are geared toward regime protection, and this is usually during the duration of like colonization. You know, you see those patterns emerge, but you also get to gain perspective. You get to look at it all as a big, from a big picture kind of dynamic. And when you look at it from that big picture dynamic, you know, despite the fact that not everyone followed the same method toward going back into the appreciation of community and tribal governance, right? Communal governance. So this idea of trying to go back to that, it was not expressed in the same way by every African government. And so you see that even though it's not a pattern, through the big picture, you can start to see that, oh, all of them are in the one way or another are trying to go back to the tribal way of doing things with regard to the appreciation for communal nuance, the communal experience, you understand? And so, at, you know, at the head of that is you have to first identify your community. And so you've got, you know, you've got dictators saying only my tribesmen can be intelligence services or whatever, right? You've got other people saying, well, the local community councils should be responsible for the police so that the police can be effective in, in appreciating the nuance of every community and how to effectively police those communities. And in the Great Lakes region, you see old 
tribal conflicts old and you know the irony of the great lakes region is that because of pre-colonial intelligence trying to determine how best to to work with their tribal neighbors one of the things that the book details is that by the time the colonizers came to to colonize the great lakes region um you know during the cleaving known as the um the scramble for africa when they established borders and and, and did all that it's like these people had already learned how to to live together and they had done it these different tribes had already learned how to live together and so they had done it for so long that they were actually dependent on one another so it's interesting to observe how um you know the knowledge of the contextual relationship of one tribe to another tribe has never been lost the awareness that we are all equal in our repression by the white man but we're not the same because we are of different tribes, right? So that appreciation of we are of different tribes existed in pre-colonial times, carried through colonial times, and in post-colonial times, it's, you know, it's at the heart of conflict, you know? It's at the heart of conflict. I mean, of course, the conflicts are motivated by other reasons, but at the heart of that conflict, you've got this tribe versus that tribe, you know, this community versus that community. So, you know... Like I say, the first thing you do when when is identify who's my community and then who's everybody else. You know, how do we appreciate the nuance of our situation over everybody else? You know, um, and so, yeah, man, this book really got me thinking a lot about different aspects of, of I think the book does a great job of what it sets out to achieve. Right. To to create a linear chronology of, of the development and evolution of intelligence services in Africa, and in doing so, to broaden our understanding by allowing us to observe patterns that emerge and by broadening our perspective of the bigger picture. You understand? And as you can tell, I could go on talking about different aspects that I observed for hours, but we don't have hours. So I really hope you enjoyed my, my observations. Um, I really hope you do go on to pick up this book if you haven't read it. Because it's, it's, it's really a short book, really succinct. It does what it sets out to do as effectively as it possibly could, in my opinion. And when people say that the phrase food for thought, this was a meal. This was, this was definitely a, a three-course meal. And as you can tell, I'm still thinking. You know, it's it's interesting to observe some of these these similarities. You know, um, one thing I've always observed is that Africa doesn't have the same sort of formality with regard to legal administration as everyone else does. I never really understood why that was. You know, you think, well, maybe colonization broke us. But then you realize, oh, they're just trying to do things in a way that they kind of can't because of what they were left with. They inherited the colonial administration. And it's like, imagine if you had to uh, collect water, drinkable water, from a river every day, right? And then one day you inherit um, indoor plumbing. The problem is you can't treat indoor plumbing like a river. You're going to have to learn how indoor plumbing works to keep it because it is, to a larger degree, more useful or more convenient than going to the river. 